Hello and welcome to the Bold Love Podcast with Pastor Bob Roberts Jr. Here we highlight the uncommon journeys of bridge builders and peacemakers that are living out their faith in the public square by boldly loving their neighbor and working together to build resilient communities. My name is Josh Tate and on the Bold Love Podcast, we want to facilitate deep conversations and tell stories that will encourage you, the listener, to live out your faith boldly, learning how to better love your neighbor and learning how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith. I'm going to be honest with you today. I'm having a little bit of a hard time realizing that this is the last episode of season one of Bold Love. Man, what a ride it's been and it's uh, been such a fun time having conversations and hearing stories uh, from Pastor Bob and his friends and uh, how they met along the way and how to love your neighbor and building bridges and why it's important kind of in this current world. And it's been so interesting to meet and interview these people from such a wide range of faith and talk about their faith and peacemaking and what that looks like in society in the public square. We are so blessed that you've come alongside us for this storytelling journey. So to wrap up season one, we are thrilled to have a conversation with Imam Dr. Omar Suleiman. He is a renowned Muslim scholar and faith-driven activist for human rights and the founder and president of Yakin Institute for Islamic Research. He is also an adjunct professor of Islamic studies in the graduate liberal arts studies program at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. In addition to being recognized by CNN as one of the 25 Muslim American changemakers, Suleiman is included in the Muslim 500, an annual ranking of the world's most influential Muslims compiled by the Royal Islamic Strategic Studies Center. Omar is a New Orleans native, so in addition to talking delicious Cajun cuisine with him, we get a chance to discuss how faith played a role in his upbringing how his faith drives him to stand up and speak up for the injustices seen uh, locally and globally, how he urges Muslims and Christians to build deeper relationships with each other, uh, even in a disagreement in theology for the good of society. And we discuss how American Muslims have been on this rocky roller coaster ride with administration and policies in general, uh, what that looks like moving forward as well. So thank you so much for joining us today. For full show notes, links, details of this episode and more, go to bobrobertsjr.com. That's bobrobertsjr.com. And I hope you enjoy this episode with Imam Dr. Omar Suleiman and Pastor Bob Roberts Jr. on the Bold Love Podcast. I am excited to be here with one of my friends, Omar Suleiman. I've admired him. I've respected him. Uh, being here in Dallas, Fort Worth, it's been cool uh, to see him over the last many years. He lives in Dallas, which uh, it's not as good as Fort Worth. I live in Fort Worth. That's where real Texans live. Dallas <laughs> are Texans want to be. Uh, but Fort Worth, you got to have your cowboy boots and your spurs on. But we like him. We don't hold that against him. <laughs> I'm glad you're here, Omar. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So, I, look, if, if it makes you feel better, I'm still I'm still New Orleans, born and raised, proud of my Louisiana roots. I still have my Louisiana area codes, so I'm holding on to it. I love Dallas too, but I'm but but I'm but I'm rooted in Louisiana. 
So tell us a little bit about that Louisiana background, how it shaped your faith. I mean, what was it like growing up as a Muslim in New Orleans? So it was, um, you know, New Orleans is, is a great place. It's it's a very welcoming place. It's a very diverse place. It's very unique to probably any other city in America. I mean, it, it's got its own feel to it. It's definitely got its Catholic uh, presence. Um you know, which is a very heavy presence. And then it also has the unique element of uh, voodoo uh, priestesses there too. So it's it's really all over the place. Uh, the food is great. Uh, growing up as a Muslim in New Orleans was, um, uh, you know, and I was between New Orleans and Baton Rouge, uh, you know, growing up, uh, you know, I was likely usually the only Muslim around. So the only Muslim in my school uh, except for a handful here or there that, you know, depending on what school I was at, what grade it was. Um, but, you know, people are pretty uh, racially ambiguous in New Orleans, so that helped me out a lot. Um, but, you know, I, I, I did witness the unfortunate um, episodes of, of David Duke and, and you know, really, uh, you know, some of, some of the heavy uh, Klan presence, Ku Klux Klan presence, which, um, you know, which, which I've seen a few rallies as, as a child. And then, also, unfortunately, come back in recent years. So uh, New Orleans is an interesting place. Louisiana is one of those places where, just like much of America, the inner cities are much different than the country. So when I drive between New Orleans and Baton Rouge, it was one thing. Okay, uh, tell, tell in, me you like jazz. Well, New Orleans is jazz central, right? So that was the... <laughs> and there are a lot of Muslim... There are a lot of Muslim jazz musicians, right? So growing up... Growing up, of course, I mean, that was in the background with all the po'boys and the beignets, just like the stereotypical, you know, uh, picture of New Orleans would be. I'm a jazz guy. Not a lot of Baptist are, but dude, I love jazz. I mean, I just listen to it all day long. And I do when I'm home at my study. So you're unique in a way. A lot of times when uh, we're watching national television or news, an imam will come on. And many times that imam is from some other country, but they're American. I'm excited that we're seeing more American-born Muslims and more American-born imams. I, I think it's great. How do you feel about that? Well, yeah, I mean, I think the Muslim community in the United States, look, I mean, our largest contingency is still African-American imams. There's the Islam, really, that uh, precedes the, uh, the immigration bill in 1966, the Islam that was born out of the Nation of Islam, and then Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali, and uh, continued onwards with uh, the legacy of Imam Warathi Muhammad, who was the son of Elijah Muhammad, the founder of the Nation of Islam that moved it uh, to Orthodox Islam, to Sunni Islam. So you still have that large, um, the, the largest portion of Muslims in America being African-American Muslims. But to your point, a lot of the Im immigrant communities that came and settled and have formed large mosques and large communities across the country We've got a we've got a an Islam uh, you know Islam in America which is very racially diverse um, just like the world right only only fifteen to eighteen percent of Muslims worldwide are Arab uh, in the United States um, you know fifty percent of the American Muslim community are are first or second generation immigrants and so you've got a nice cultural mix which brings about unique conversations and great cuisine. <laughs> <laughs> I've been told that. The most, uh, the future expression of Islam, the place to look for it may be in America more than anywhere else in the world. That the leading edge of Islam is no longer in the East, it's here in the West in America. Is that true? 
What is your opinion of that? I think it's to be determined uh, because when you think about some of the great universities and educational institutions that have great legacies in the Muslim world, I, that has not yet been replicated. There have certainly been universities and colleges and seminaries that are great universities, colleges and seminaries that are uh, you know, run by friends of mine and, and I deeply admire them and I deeply admire the efforts. But you know, Islam is built upon a great legacy of education and knowledge. And so I think that those seminaries have yet to be replicated here. I think that what is, um, uh, you know, very true is that Muslims in the United States, who of course are not united across all political opinions and beliefs and schools of thought, they, we, we have diversity, great diversity here, but um, Muslims in the United States have the ability to voice certain opinions um, about the political situation uh, that, you know, ails Muslims globally that Muslims and in, in, in much of the Muslim world can't because of the way that some of those regimes are operating right now. And so uh, I think there's a, a freedom to, to grow and to explore um, our, our tradition and how our tradition comes into play with, uh, you know, very rapidly changing political realities that affect us both as Muslims in America as well as Muslims globally. And humanity, of course, our, our brothers and sisters in humanity, right? The politics of the world. Um, you know, deeply influence the religious, social, and cultural trends. And so I hope that American Muslims can stay authentic uh, to their Islam uh, while being on the cusp of contribution to not just their American society, but their global society and can champion causes of good and can, can continue to build on the legacy of our tradition without the political hindrance that uh, we've had in so many different parts of the Muslim world. You know, when I look at uh, the Muslims in America, most are very educated, very successful. And when you realize there's 1.6 billion Muslims in the world, I've thought the Muslim community in America could be a gold mine for business, education, uh, science, global connectivity. I, I think there's an opportunity uh, through the Muslim community in America to connect to the Muslim world to do business and, and things we never dreamed of. Do you think that's possible or is that just a pie in the sky kind of a dream? So as Muslims are sort of leading the way in, in medicine and, and, and engineering and in, in different sciences and different fields, um, I think that the, the challenge will be to authentically give back uh, to the Muslim community here and abroad and to serve as that bridge. Because as we know, many times when people uh, ascend in the economic ranks, they, they do business uh, where, where business is good to them and not necessarily where they can contribute and, and really use uh, the position that they've been given to build bridges, to, to serve global causes and to, to do more ethical uh, or to have a greater ethical uh, intervention. And I think that with the COVID pandemic, that is going to show itself even more so because the rich have gotten richer, the yeah. poor have gotten poorer and global hunger is to double. And so all of that leads to more political instability, you know, a greater refugee crisis globally, um, tensions rising, far right movements growing, how that's going to cripple or give way to certain people to, uh, to carve a unique path forward is going to be very important. And lastly, I'll say on that, that building a relationship with the Muslim world does not mean building a relationship with Muslim governments. And a lot of times people mix the Good two. Word. So that's that's a, that, there's a very big difference between working with Muslim populations and working with Muslim uh, governments. And 
um, it's important to start to facilitate, especially some of those war-torn countries like Iraq or Yemen or um, you know, or, or, or Sudan, people, you know, Libya, so many places where in the Muslim world where the, the countries have a destroyed infrastructure uh, to help rebuild the infrastructures of those countries and to and to to, to build off of the genius that's been hindered and present, um, you know, in those countries. How would you uh, rate the uh, current status of uh, America and Islam and Christians, evangelicals? How do you see the how, how would you rate it? How, how would you what, what would you say the current state of Islam in, is in America and your relationship with Christians and evangelicals specifically? Um, you know, I, I think first, when you talk about the current state of Islam, I think that it is uh, extremely important to. To push back on Islam becoming a political identity or Muslim becoming a political identity, I think that both the, the right and the left in America have in, in ways reduced Islam and Muslims to a political identity, right? And in, in the case of the right, a political identity that is threatening, in the case of the left, a political identity um, that, is, uh, that, that, that is an ally in, in certain social work and things of that sort, right? But at, at, at the core of that is that what's often lost is that we're a religious community, we're a faith community. And I think that there's a tension right now uh, for, for many different reasons as to whether or not Islam thrives as a religious identity in America or not, whether uh, Muslims can truly be American and Muslim with a capital A and a capital M, or, or if success in either of those realms is going to determine um, diminishing um, either their, their, uh, their national identity or their religious identity. And I think that's a very real tension, and I think that there's a lot to still play out. My hope is that, yes, we can be uh, American Muslims with a capital A and a capital M, and uh, those that uh, embrace us as such, then we embrace them and work with them. And those that uh, are threatened either by the American part or the Muslim part, then uh, we still love them, but we we simply work with those that are willing to work with us. And so, what I say with 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 Christians, obviously, you know, Bob, we have a great relationship in Dallas between um, multi faith community in our multi faith uh, spectrum. It's it's probably one of the strongest in in the country, and it goes beyond Muslims and Christians, Muslims, Christians, Jews, and otherwise uh, people that have been able to come together. You were a part of the conceptualizing and founding of Faith for Dallas, which is just a blessing to be a part of. Uh, where we've been able to bring together people of different faiths and different political ideas as well. With Muslims and Christians specifically, um, I think that, um, you know, we have to see that as religious communities, uh, religion as a whole is under, uh, is, is suspect right now, and, and partly because of the actions of religious people. Okay, so... Uh, the intervention of religion in the public square has to be healthy and one of contribution and one that infuses ideas of, of, uh, of love and togetherness and unity and harmony, despite our uh, differences in, in theology and despite our differences with people of no faith. And at the same time, the public square cannot become like uh, a situation like France, where secularism becomes as oppressive as any, as any religious uh, ideology, where uh, religious institutions are shut down and religious groups are targeted and penalized because they don't adopt the dogma of secularism. So I think that Muslims and Christians have a lot to do together. And I would say that um, there's been progress 
in recent years, relationships that are being built around the country at the local level between uh, different faith leaders and dif between different communities. What we have to do is to normalize the relationships between um, Muslims and Christians of, of, of different, uh, all throughout the political spectrum to really demonstrate that, look, if we can work together, and this is, again, not just true for Muslims and Christians, but it goes beyond in multi-faith work. If we can work together, despite having different ideas of creed and salvation and scripture, and what is most beloved to me as a Muslim is Islam. And I'm pretty sure what's most beloved to you is your Christianity. If we can work together and love love each other and, and, and bring about collective good, despite that difference, then people can overcome their political differences. People can overcome um, their ideological differences for the common good. I really like what you said about uh, your identity not getting played either by the right or the left. Uh, trust me, Omar, speaking as an evangelical, you don't want it, man. We paid such a price as evangelicals. And I'm sorry to say we've become a voting block instead right. of people of faith. And it just, I can't stand it because, uh, you know, I'm pro-life. And pro-life means I'm against abortion. And it means I love refugees. And I'm going to do everything I can to help them. I hate we've been pinpointed. So hopefully your tribe will avoid that better than mine has. I would be curious, what would you say to someone listening who's not a Muslim? So here's the Muslim identity to look for. Here's what makes us unique as a, as a people. What, what can you count on when you look at a Muslim? This is it. I think that Muslims are, um, and again, I can't speak for all Muslims, so I don't want to claim that, but I think that uh, we have a particular understanding of how uh, state violence, whether it's domestic or global, has decimated populations. And so we're very sensitive to abuses of power at the state level, what, whether that's in foreign policy or that, that manifests itself in police brutality or that manifests itself in cruel practices at the border. Um, I think that when it comes to social values, Muslims will lean conservative on social values and will find themselves lost in this current political discourse in many ways, just like you just mentioned. You're not, you know, Muslims are not going to be for late term abortion, but Muslims are not going to be for kids in cages. And Muslims are not going to, you know, so Muslims are going to care about the, you know, or should ideally, due to their Islam, care about the woman who uh, was was forced into, um, you know, difficult situations. And at the same time, uh, so that means healthcare and, and welfare and, and economic opportunity and removing, you know, systemic uh, racism and, and, and discrimination, how that plays out in, in, in cycles of poverty. And at the same time, you know, our, 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 our scope of human dignity is going to encompass what our current polarized discourse doesn't allow as a unique, authentic position. So I think that Muslims will, will, will be very critical of, um, of American domestic and foreign policy as it relates to state violence. Um, so whether that means police brutality or militarism, they'll be very skeptical of, uh, of whether or not Democrats or Republicans are much different in that regard, because, you know, the, it no. seems like that doesn't change across administrations when it comes to uh, the, the, the uh, you know, the, the heavy forces that are used um, against people um, at the border, again, overseas and in our inner cities. But again, on, on social values, I think that Muslims are, uh, tend uh, to be social conservative and find themselves in an awkward position. And to your point, uh, you said, you know, trying to avoid becoming a voting block, that's really powerful. 
Um, that is a very important, um, you know, element of this discussion because that's just, that makes all of our relationships transactional, not transformational. It does no favor to Islam and it does no favor to America. It's not true to faith and it's not true to what this country is supposed to stand for in harmonizing between people of uh, different views. And just as on the left, there are elements that seem to be hostile to religion. As you mentioned, and I said this, um, you know, that white nationalism is just as secular, secularizing as anything that's on the left. And so we have to be very careful to not let these political, um, you know, th these political um, ideas secularize our religion in either way to where we don't have any authentic intervention anymore. Then we're just, uh, we're just political positions with collars uh, that does nothing. Uh, to enrich the way that religion enriched through the likes of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and through the likes of Malcolm X and people that worked out of a place of deep faith to better their their country. You would be considered as an activist. You stand up for uh, people that are hurting, that are suffering. You don't mind speaking out. What role does your faith play for you in that? Is it the foundation of that? How do you determine what you're going to speak out on or not speak out on? And what role does your faith play in that? Uh, everything, everything that I do, I do from a place of what what I believe is what my faith commands me to do. And so empathy is deeply embedded in the Quran and in the tradition of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. He had an explicit tradition of social justice. Um, and what that plays out in is, is just being so averse or, or, or so um, outraged, but in a from a place of love when you see people exploited and taken advantage of and harmed. Um, so we are, are, you know, our holy book or the, the Quran is filled with references to the orphan and to the captives and, um, you know, to people that are exploited because they don't have the mechanisms of voice or power to do away with the evil that they are the victims of. Um, so that's where I act out of. I act out of the example of the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, which I believe is the example of all of the prophets and all of those great people, peace be upon them all. I believe that Jesus, peace be upon him, uh, was was an example of empathy and love and care for the world around him. And I believe that Muhammad, peace be upon him, was an example of empathy and love and care for the world around him. And sometimes that means um, going beyond the realm of charity. Uh, charity, you know, everyone feels good about charity. No one objects to uh, taking sandwiches to, to the homeless. But once you start talking about the policies that lead to poverty, then then you're 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 stepping on someone's shoes. Then right. you are. Once you start turning the tables over, then uh, <laughs> then you're a threat. And uh, what what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. called the three-headed monster of racism, poverty, and militarism. That is just as true in 2020 as it was in 1967 when he said that. Uh, so that's what I think we have to, as people of faith, be activated towards, uh, towards combating racism, poverty, and militarism uh, in all of their in all of their phases. In the Hebrew scriptures, or what we Christians would call the Old Testament, you can't escape the word justice. In the New Testament, Jesus used the word that it's in the Gospels. I've read the Quran. In the English version, I've read it uses the word justice. I don't understand sometimes why religious people are so averse now to the word justice. It is a faith term more than it is a secular term. I believe it is our faith that drives justice, a sense of fairness, right, that it's the values that we have. I, I really am sad. Uh, a rabbi 
that has had a huge impact on my life just died. His name was Jonathan Sachs. And he just wrote a book when we were trying to get him on our podcast. And uh, it's on morality. And that whole book deals with the sense of justice coming from our morals. And he even goes so far as to say our faith in God. He even pushes it a little farther in saying monotheism has an incredibly strong basis of consistency of ethics and morals and justice. Why do you think uh, people today get nervous when they hear terms like systemic justice or justice or it, it's a faith issue? Do you think people, uh, young people see that as a faith issue or is it a social secular view of what's going on? Well, I think that, you know, in Islam, we have a recognition that people have inherent good qualities that they sometimes act upon. So I think some people just see injustice and God has put in them to recognize injustice as injustice and they're activated towards it. Um, but, you know, they they uh, they have not made that connection to faith. Um, I think that people today, you know, um, obviously, for the most part, live on their devices and their technology and their entire worldview is but being molded by someone else <laughs> or multiple factors. And so um, most people have blind spots and that includes people of faith. Um, Muslims have blind spots. I have blind spots. Um, I'm not going to say you have blind spots. I have blind spots. No, we I all have, have any. Yeah, you don't have any. <laughs> I thought so. I thought you got a lot. We we got we've got blind spots, and we don't work through those blind spots until we are in proximity of people or pain. When you're in the proximity of pain, uh, that suddenly changes yeah, your yeah. world. So when you see yeah. someone who's suffering due to some of these cruel and inhumane policies, then suddenly that becomes your issue. When you're in the proximity of people that have suffered. Or people that that have encountered the pain that you have not, then suddenly your worldview gets complicated. You know, I, I'd written this um, some time ago, and, and I do believe it, that you know that your heart is vested in an issue when you hear about that issue and a name pops up in your head, a face pops up in your head, and you think about a person. Because we dehumanize people when we reduce them to casualties and hashtags, and we don't, we don't, we don't give them the uh, the place of, of a human presence in our hearts. That's not what our faith teaches us. Our faith teaches us to, to, to expand our hearts, to include people that otherwise uh, would not be there. And so I bring up the Iraq war all the time. All right. How many Americans can name a single victim of the Iraq war? Hundreds of thousands of people. How many Americans can name one? There's not a face that comes to mind. Uh, when you talk about the Palestinians, when you talk about uh, you know, uh, the Syrians, the, the, the attacks that happen throughout the through, uh, constantly in places like Ethiopia and Somalia. Um, we can't name people. And at the border, right, we're in Texas at the border. We have the largest, most aggressive ICE uh, agency in, in, in Dallas. It's more aggressive than anywhere else in the country. I can't name people. I can't think of people. Then I, I allow myself to be disconnected. So, of course, when, uh, when, I'm, when, when I hear, what I, what, what I feel like is aggressive advocacy on their behalf, I don't get it because I don't know them. I, I don't, you know, it doesn't, why can't they just do this? And why can't it just, we try to, we try to make it logical rather than realizing that the pain that people have been subjected to due to 
um, the inequalities, economic and political, that exist. That is what's illogical. And so we have to rethink why this keeps on happening or else what you're going to have. There's a documentary. I don't know if you've seen it. Have you seen the documentary Human Flow? I have not. Yeah, it's a great documentary. It just talks about the global refugee crisis. I know you've been to refugee camps around the world and you've seen the pain of refugees around the world. Going to a refugee camp will change you as a person. It, it will change a religious experience. It will change you as a human being to see people that have no future in sight, that have no country willing to accept them, that have no citizenship, children with no education, no food, no drink, completely out of sight as far as the world seen as concerned. That's a tough thing to encounter. And it really, it has stripped humanity um, of, of just its basic decency when you see it there and you say, what, am I responsible for this when I don't, when I don't bring them up, when I don't advocate yeah. for them? And I, and I think we are. It's, it's uh, refugees are a very passionate uh, part of my heart because I've seen that. And uh, I'll tell you some other time about some crazy ideas I've got I'm working on to see how we can uh, Heal some stuff because I think it's huge. You know, uh, being raised as an evangelical, we support Israel, we love the Jews, and so forth. I'm sorry to say I, I didn't know what a Palestinian was, and so when I would hear about the Six Day War or I heard anything about Israel Palestine, there was never any thought about who were these Palestinians. And then, through some unique circumstances, about 20 years ago, I went to the West Bank. And I, I had a come, as we would say, Omar, I had a come to Jesus meeting because I met all of these Palestinians that were really suffering. And then I met all these evangelical Palestinians. And I began to think, my word, my speculative theology is creating massive pain on people that I didn't even know existed. And now when I go to, the, go to Israel sometimes, we'll go to the West Bank, I have pastors, you know, I don't have to say a word. It was amazing, without exception, they would see what was going on. And their question was, Bob, what is this? I mean, do Americans know this? Do evangelicals know this? And, But I think what happens is when you sit on the world news and you watch something, but you see someone else's face. I, I got a call yesterday from a man I've been friends with for 20 years, but he's been in Egyptian prison the last seven years. And so when I hear there's 60,000 people in prison right now in Egypt, unjustly, mm -hmm. that there's no charges. They're held there just because they were at an event where they were wanting freedom for their country, but they were identified as X when they weren't. And I see a yeah. picture of a guy that I know there who's, who's about to lose his leg or die one, whichever happens first. You, you can't look at that anymore and just say, oh, that's sad. You know, and I think you're right, Omar. What 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 responsibility has God placed on us when we see things? It's not right just to blow it off and say, "Yeah, well, we took our limit." You know, I, I think how we how and this is important, Omar. What it means to be accountable to God, and what it means to be accountable to a government are two different things. And I don't know about Islam, but what Jesus expects of me. Is far more than Uncle Sam. Hmm. But, but I think it's all about relationships. I'll, I'll say this. Um, I don't think any person of conscience could know the Palestinian plight 
and could actually see the miserable conditions, the restriction on movement, the occupation, the continued settlement expansion, the displacement, the the daily humiliation of those checkpoints, um, the catastrophe of the Palestinians, and have a heart. I'm not. I mean, you. You. And by the way, I mean this is not just. Uh, this is Muslims, Jews, Christians, people of faith, people of conscience that encounter the Palestinian plight and that are honest with themselves and honest with their hearts, uh, can't turn a blind eye to it. And the way that the, the, the role that, um, that the United States has played, um, and again, uh, with the help of, of certain governments, unfortunately, in the Muslim world to solidify the, the daily humiliation to erase the Palestinians from their own fate, from their own negotiations, from their own ability to speak for themselves, from their own advocacy, which is one of the greatest forms of erasure. Have you ever heard of anyone in the United States being fired for anti-Palestinian bigotry? People can say the worst, the most dehumanizing racist things about the Palestinians, the people that live under occupation in the millions. Uh, Gaza has you know, some probably the worst economic situation uh, you know, one of the worst economic situations in the world, highest unemployment rates, they can't fish, they're blockaded, they're embargoed. Have you ever, I mean, people say some horrible things about Palestinians. Have you ever heard of anyone being fired? No, but you know, hey, it, it's just it's just part of the daily humiliation and daily erasure. And so I feel called, I, I, I certainly won't be silent, uh, just as, um, you know, any type of bigotry Anti-Semitism is unacceptable. Anti-Palestinian bigotry is unacceptable. Erasing the Palestinians is unacceptable. Um, you know, whitewashing the occupation as as just you know two peoples that can't get along. And uh, no, it's 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 more than that. And as you mentioned, Palestinian Christians are being humiliated too. You know, my 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 mom's family is actually uh, we have Muslims and Christians in my mom's family. My mom grew up in Schmidt in Bethlehem. She went to a Catholic school her whole life in Bethlehem. Oh, wow. Palestinian Christians are, are suffering as well. And so I think it's, if not, you know, one of the greatest blind spots uh, on, on the evangelical side that people like yourself are bravely challenging is to say, look, you know, this is a human catastrophe. This is a human issue. And I'm, I am, I am, I am, um, as much as I, as I just mentioned that you, you never hear of a person being penalized for things that they say about the Palestinians or just blatantly racist, Islamophobic things that they say about uh, Arabs or Palestinians. Um, but you, you do see plenty of people fired from their positions, targeted through malicious campaigns, put on watch lists because they're critical of Israel um, that have all sorts of things happen to them, sometimes for things that are actually um, you know, overboard. But the point is, is that it's, it's so disproportionate. And I'll say this, that I'm encouraged to see Younger people are different. Very young much. people, young people, yeah. Muslims, Christians, Jews, and people of no faith that, that that take the time to learn about what is happening to the Palestinian people, uh, seek a solution, a human solution um, that um, that allows people to live with dignity, because all people deserve to live in dignity. And you cannot, uh, you you can't whitewash occupation and the continued settlement expansion that's taking place there. You know, Omar, I'm very optimistic about your generation. I'm 62. And my biggest prayer is I want to see you guys get in places of leadership because I think you have a healthier view of the world. I think you're more optimistic. You know, my son's 35. I'm guessing you're in your 30s. And 
I don't know. My biggest prayer for my generation is, please, God, don't let us screw it up for the next generation. Listen, I hear more pro-Palestinian stuff from some of my Jewish friends than I do anybody else right now. It excites me. And I just, I don't know. I think uh, the older you get, sometimes, sadly, you can either become wise and have a broader view or you become narrow and become more rigid. The last four years, I'm curious about this. What's it been like to be a Muslim under uh, the current administration on the way out versus the new administration? Um, so I wrote an article uh, called Moving Past Inshallah about the Biden administration. I was asked um, by Religion News, which I'm blessed to serve as a columnist at Religion News um, in recent years, which is one of the few outlets that, that allows for some pretty authentic, great religious engagement from different sides. Um, and so I was asked to give a Muslim reaction. I said, listen, I, I don't, I can't claim to speak for all Muslims, but uh, I don't want to give a pessimistic reaction. I just, I just want to be real. You know, I'm going to be authentic that um, uh, unfortunately we have seen certain things that have uh, transpired against the Muslim community under all administrations. Uh, particularly I'd say in a post 9-11 world, you know, you, the, the Iraq Afghan war, uh, we mentioned the Palestinians, obviously, but the the the, the crushing um, programs that have come out that that really rob the Muslim community of their civil liberties, surveillance, entrapment, things that are really um, you know that 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 are molded in in the same in the same spirit of COINTELPRO and stop and frisk and things of that sort that that African Americans have suffered um, for 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 generations. Uh, the attack on the civil liberties of the Muslim community has been has been devastating, um, you know, in the name of countering violent extremism programs that exclusively target the Muslim community and that harass Muslims um, have, have been molded. And a lot of that came out of the Bush years. A lot of it grew in the Obama years. And in the Trump years, we just had open hostility from our president. To have a president that openly says, I think Islam hates us, that calls for a Muslim ban in his presidency and in his in his candidacy, and then wins, you know, and then has an iteration where we had the largest amount of detainees. You know, we had people almost die in DFW, uh, elderly people, because they were sleeping on the floor in the back there in TSA. Uh, we had a man with a broken. His name was Isa. I actually wrote about him after because we had the, the the protests here at the airport um, when that happened. His name was Isa, which which is Jesus. Uh, peace be upon him. He was an Iraqi who suffered a broken pelvis as an American military contractor. And he flew in when Muslim ban came down and then he got held back there for days and he almost died because he didn't have access to his medicine and, and his pain overwhelmed him. And so I, I, you know, my challenge was whose Christianity or patriotism allows for that type of just, uh, you know, just, just complete removal of a person's dignity and harm towards a person like that. So we had open hostility from the Trump administration in many ways. What, what, what I don't want to see with the Biden administration is that the policies continue to be hostile, but the rhetoric uh, goes back to being friendly. Um, we need to see changes in policy. The way that America treats Islam and Muslims globally and domestically has to change. We've got to talk about the wars. We've got to talk about our drone programs. We've got to talk about our surveillance programs. We have to talk about why Guantanamo Bay is still open. And, you know, people are there without trial. There, there have already been numerous instances of innocent people that got picked up and sent there without any type of fair trial for 
for years. We have to talk about those that were thrown into prison and organizations that were shut down in the wake of 9-11 that did, you know, that the ACLU called the grossest violations of civil liberties, civil rights, sham trials. We have to undo the harm. And that's going to take frank conversation. And I know we're, we're getting to the end of this, so I'll just say this. You can't build real relationship without uncomfortable conversation. You have to be willing to have difficult conversations if you want to build an authentic relationship with someone. And so that's what I treasure about our relationship. I know we've we've been able to have some very um, you know uh, direct conversations, and I've never felt like I'm going to lose you as a friend yeah. by us having some of those hard conversations. And we usually end up in a similar place together, don't we? Because that's what happens when loving and rational people talk to one another. They end up in in a pretty sim- they end up closer to each other than they were before. So we have to have difficult conversations as a country about what we want to be. Um, domestically and globally. Honestly believe, Omar, we can have more of an impact on America through working outside the government, bringing results, bringing pressure to bear on the government, than trying to be inside the government. Hmm. Uh, Because, you know, you get inside of an institution, you have to pay your dues, Uh can't speak clearly. And I learned this as a young pastor. If I wanted to influence my religion the most, I could speak more to it outside it, doing what I knew was right and bringing credible results versus being on the inside and thinking change. I teach young pastors, there's two reasons you stand before a king. This is out of the Hebrew scriptures and Proverbs. One is because you're with somebody and you represent a group wanting something. The other is because the king wants to meet you because you have served the subjects of the kingdom so well. He wants to know, who is this person? What are they doing? Why are you doing that? And that's my prayer. All right, I've got a dream. Here's here's my dream, Omar. I would like to see Christians, especially evangelicals, because we've given you guys more hell than anybody else. Here's (laughs) Here's my desire. I would like to see evangelicals and Muslims find one thing to do together that changes something in this country significantly. I don't know. And not just the law, not just change a law. I would like to see us change a culture. Mm. What, what, what would you say? Let's do this. Bro. I would say, I would say that. Thank you. You know, the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said that uh, regret is repentance. So <laughs> you acknowledged, <laughs> you acknowledged. Yeah, I mean, we, we did. Have, but, but I will say not all evangelicals have been harmful towards Muslims. We've had some great relationships for them over the last few years, for sure. Um, but, I, but, but here's what I would say. I would say that the challenge for our religious groups is definitely going to be, you know, the preservation of um, our rights to be religious groups in this country. and. Uh, and for religious freedom to not just become a talking point of of evangelical Christians, but to be uh, truly, you know, uh, a a call that uh, that maintains the the uh, the freedom to practice for all religious communities, um, you know, for and and that allows for us to be activated uh, against um, you know the oppression of of people, um, you know, on the basis of their religion, but. Here's what, where I think we build on that. And this is something that you just said. What if we were able to do something together that goes beyond preservation uh, of our own communities and of our own rights and sort of uh, a shared um, you know, belief that, that religious groups have um, an interest in seeing 
all, all religious groups thrive uh, and instead do something positive together that is for the benefit of all people. That's what Faith Forward Dallas was molded in here. And, you know, I'm from New Orleans and, and you know, we can't open this discussion too much right now because of time, but Hurricane Katrina, the way our religious communities came together to rebuild New Orleans as a city was fundamental to the relationships that were established in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. We were gutting out buildings, restriping streets, redoing gardens, housing the homeless together as religious communities. And when you go into the Superdome and you go where, the, where you have evacuees, you pick the people that need the housing most. And you don't say, well, all right, I found the Muslim. Let me bring them to, to the mosque. No, it was this person needs help. All right, we've got a network. We're building together. Uh, I don't want us to go through more devastation, but tragedy should wake us up to realize that we should, as religious communities, um, bring forth something positive to the community around us rather than simply preserve ourselves. So, so I want us to dream about, think about it, because there's probably something good. Instead of just fighting evil, I'd like to build something good, uh, because that's what, that's what remembers. All right, Omar, I pray for you frequently. I do. You, you're in my city. So I follow you on Twitter, and I love your heart, and I love your spirit. I appreciate that. Here's, here's what I'm going to pray for you, and I'm very serious about it. I was thinking as I was watching you talk, how do I pray for Omar Suleiman? So one of my heroes is Gandhi, and he meditated on the Sermon on the Mount four hours a day. A famous evangelical wrote about him and said Gandhi lived the gospel more than most evangelicals who have accepted the whole gospel. But Gandhi understood the truth of it, and he changed his, he changed his country. Martin Luther King, a Christian, changed civil rights in America and the world. Because, young man, you're very gifted, and you're very sharp, and you're very authentic. And I love you, and I'm going to keep praying for you. And I'm going to disagree with you. I'm not going to embarrass you. But I'm going to direct message you sometimes and say, dude, you're wrong about that. You need to you need to listen to me. But other than that, <laughs> I'm just giving you a hard time. I'm going to pray for God to do that in your life. I appreciate yeah. that. But no, that no, no pleasure. Brother, okay. You're loved. And I pray that that uh, we're able to to do something extraordinary together and that, uh, you know, and, and, and I'm grateful to you for the the friendship and the the mentorship and the role that you've played in doing a lot of things. Um, you know, to, to bring about good in Dallas and elsewhere. Thank you, everyone, for taking time to join us with this interview with Dr. Imam Omar Suleiman here with Bob Roberts Jr. If you were impacted by this conversation, we would love for you to download and subscribe to the podcast because even though this is the end of season one, we're going to launch a season two, and even in between, we're going to have some fun uh, interviews and podcasts and uh, features that we can share with you uh, just surrounding this topic. So we would love for you to go and subscribe to the podcast and share with others on social media the conversations that are being had here. So so for more information about it, show notes, references, go to bobrobertsjr.com, click podcast, and you can get all the information there. Again, we appreciate you so much for joining us on this journey. And remember, at the Bold Love Podcast, we want to encourage you, the listener, to live out your faith boldly, learn how to better love your neighbor, and learn how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith. Thank you so much, and God bless.